Well, on this Father's Day, we're going to take a little break from our current series in 2 Timothy. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to see what kind of work we can do this morning, man, to be better than what we came in with. I think that God's intent has always been to be with his children. I think that God's intent has always been to be with his children. John 14, verse 1 says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, but don't worry. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I think that God's intent has always been to be with his children. This is, uh, this is my Father's Day card for my oldest son. He made it back uh, while he was still uh, in school, in kindergarten. It's good kindergarten handwriting right there. It's got a, uh, a picture of me that he, he made himself right there. You see? How's that look? It's pretty good. Yeah. On the other side, it's got facts about dad. And these are always interesting if you've seen these before. Uh, the teacher, um, trying to help the parents out, I guess, so that uh, you know what your kids think of you, which is not always a pleasant thing. Uh, they, they give the kids these questions to answer. And it's usually funny. Sometimes it's disturbing what the kids say. Mine only has a few questions. None of them are too, uh, are too disturbing. How old is your dad? He got it right. I was 35. He knows that because I, I ask him every time he does something and I tell him, Grady, don't do that. And he does it anyway. I say, how old is dad? 35. How old are you? Six. I've been around a lot longer, buddy. So that's the only reason he knows how old I am is because I harp on him all the time. The second question, what does your dad like to do? He put play kick, K-I-K, play kickball with me. That's pretty good. The fourth one says, I love my dad because, and he had to fill in the blank, because he plays with me. And that's great. My favorite, though, is the third one. My wife and I both laughed. It says, what makes your dad happy? And he put this in his mom's when it was Mother's Day, and he put it in mine. No question. I do. <laughs> what makes your dad happy? I, I do. Well, of course he does. Uh, I have to be honest. I, I enjoy my boys, two boys, six, and uh, just now turned four. My favorite thing probably is not playing kickball. I'm a little out of shape to be playing kickball with all the neighborhood kids, but I enjoy it. But, but just to be with them is my favorite thing. I was up early this morning and I was on the couch going over my message and uh, Grady comes, you know, half asleep out of his room and he can barely see and he, and he sees me and he just comes over and, and lays on top of me on the couch. And he doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to do anything. Just, just being with him. That's my, that's my favorite thing. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that he's not yet yelling, screaming, crying, having a fit, chasing his brother. Nobody's in pain or anything, right? It's just those moments when it's just silence. Yeah, but just being with him. He, he was right. He was right. His dad's favorite thing, what makes his dad happy, it's him. I think God's intent has always been to be with his children, to enjoy us. In Genesis 3, after the fall, the Bible says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
Have you ever thought about that, that moment, that encounter? Uh, I started thinking about it more this week. The moment where sin enters the world and everything now has changed. Adam and Eve immediately and instinctively know that something has gone horribly wrong. The Bible says that they realized they were naked. They looked at each other. They laughed. They looked at themselves. They cried. And then they went and found clothes, right? That's my translation. But they, they began to automatically just cover themselves. They knew something was wrong now. Yeah, we instinctively still carry that with us. Something had gone horribly wrong. And not only did Adam and Eve cover themselves, but Genesis says that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the Lord. As if that were a strange thing for them to do now. As if God had walked in the garden before, and now they were afraid. They had covered themselves, but that wasn't good enough. When they heard just the voice of God at a distance in the garden, walking, they hid. Uh, I know why they hid. We know why they hid, right? But I find God's response amazing and completely, I'll be honest, completely unexpected. And if we're all honest, it's probably completely unexpected for most of us. Think about what has happened for a moment. God has created the heavens, the earth, the land, the seas, the great and the small lights, put them in the sky, every animal on land, every animal on sea, every animal in the sky. And then he formed Adam with his own hands, breathed life into his nostrils, gave him a partner beside him from his side, put them in a, in a lavish garden, took care of all of their needs, put them in charge, and then they blew it in a moment. Everything now is ruined after all that work. After God sat back and scripture says that God has declared it is good. And now in a moment they've blown it. Now think about that moment. It's all ruined. If I'm God, if you're God, I'm a little agitated. Yeah? I'm a little agitated. I think Adam and Eve have good reason to hide, don't you? But here's the uh, completely unexpected part. The God that created them and placed them in the garden, gave them authority and instruction, walks back into their world as if he's taking an evening stroll. But everything has been ruined. Commentator Matthew Henry points out that he doesn't descend upon the sinners from out of the heavens. Think about that. If you're God, in that moment, after all that's been done, after all of the blessings, and now in one fell swoop, it's all been ruined. Sin has entered the world. If I'm God, I'm not strolling onto the scene. <laughs> I'm parting the heavens and I'm coming down on the culprits. That's why I say this, this response by God is completely unexpected. Because he, he walks casually in. Matthew Henry says he isn't riding a black cloud or a flaming chariot. He walked 
He didn't even run. It's all been ruined, church. And he walks. Matthew Henry goes on to say that he came in the cool of the day. Not in the night when we're doubly afraid of anything that goes bump in the dark. He came in the day. And he came in the cool of the day, not in the heat of the day, and apparently not in the heat of his anger. And he didn't even come suddenly. He didn't fall upon them as we might expect he would. He keeps a distance. They heard him at a great distance, his voice as if giving them warning. Matthew Henry says, and it was likely a still small voice that came from God. But everything has been ruined, church. He apparently didn't intend to terrify them. But don't miss this. He knew. He knew. Don't for one moment assume that God was unaware of what has taken place in the garden. He knew. Don't for one moment even less believe that he didn't know where Adam and Eve were. He knew. Now that should blow you away. That God walks in. Adam, where are you? I think God's intent has always been to be with his children. What makes my daddy happy? I do. We do. His children do. I believe that to be true about God as well. But I also think his intent to be with us is not only about his enjoyment, but it's also about our enjoyment of him. His intent to be with us is not just about him enjoying us, although I believe he does. It is also about our enjoyment of him. The Westminster Catechism starts like this. The chief end of man, our goal, our purpose, this is it. The chief end of man, what is it? Here it is. This is what, they, this is what they've narrowed it down. This is what they've boiled it down to. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John Piper in his book, Desiring God, says rightly that the authors of the Westminster Catechism did not intend for those two things to be autonomous. The chief end of man is singular. It's not the chief ends of man, as if it were to glorify God and to enjoy him. The chief singular end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him as if they are directly connected and unable to be separated. The glory of God comes in our enjoying him. Put it another way. God has always intended that we enjoy him. Think about it. He's always intended that we enjoy his presence. I wonder how many of us today can say that we enjoy him. Usually the, usually the, the crux of the message, usually the, the challenge point of the message comes towards the end. This morning it's, it's right here. I wonder how many of his supposed children who have gathered in his house today. I wonder how many of his supposed friends have gathered who fail to just very simply enjoy God. I don't know that many of us understand that Christianity, the living out, the walking out of our Christianity, our relationship with our Creator should be refreshing 
and freeing. Do you know that, church? Psalm 38, or 34, verse 8, excuse me, says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He is good. Blessed is the man that takes refuge in him. Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, in Jesus' own words, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, what's the word? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, your relationship with God should not be a heavy burden. It should be a delight. God has always intended that we enjoy Him, but to enjoy Him means that we be found in his presence to enjoy him we have to be with him God has always intended to be with his children simply put enjoying God requires God think about it enjoying God requires God's very presence if we're out of God's presence we can't experience and enjoy our God we don't get the the rest that he mentions in Matthew God's intent to be with us. He is resolute to be with us. This is why I say that it has always been God's intent to be with us. Being with us, think about it, church, is the best thing He can do for us. To enjoy Him, we must be with Him. Ever since the garden, all the way back to the beginning, God's been finding ways to be with His kids. Ever since the garden, all the way back to the beginning, God has been finding ways to be with his children. When he walked back into the garden, at the moment everything had been ruined and found Adam and Eve in hiding, trying to cover their guilt and shame, he immediately enacted a recovery plan. He immediately enacted his restoration plan. A plan that would get us out of hiding and would erase our guilt so that we could forever enjoy being with him once again. So that when he walks in, we don't run and hide. We don't cover ourselves in shame. The rest of this story, past Genesis, is the unfolding, it's the fulfilling of that restoration plan. It wouldn't happen overnight, obviously, but all along the way you find God drawing nearer and nearer to his children. Restoring the gap. He wants to be with his children. It won't be the same for a long time, but God doesn't relent. Things have changed. Sin has come in between us now. But God is in the process of resolving the issue. He wants to be with us to enjoy us, and for us to enjoy Him in His presence. But things had to change, didn't they? Until sin would be dealt with completely, things had to change. There would be no more walking together in the cool of the day. Here's what happened. Follow with me. God covered Adam and Eve, not with leaves, but with skin of an animal, so that a temporary system of sacrifice now begins. This system set a pattern for the final and ultimate sacrifice of God which would be himself for the restoration of his children. 
In the meantime, drawing near to God required this temporary and symbolic act of sacrifice. There had to be mediation. There had to be sacrifice for us to draw near, to be with our God. God's presence is now limited to what is called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. It's what it sounds like. It's a tent. It's a tent designed by God where God would meet with his children over the blood of a sacrifice covering our sins. There's mediation. There's now restrictions. There's now barriers. There's now requirements for us to be with God. But he makes a way. He wants to be with his children. Where the children of God went, the tent went. And so the presence of God went. God to Israel dwelt in the tabernacle. If you wanted to approach God, you went to the tabernacle. You made sacrifice. You drew near to God. Exodus 25.8 says this, Let them make me a sanctuary, a dwelling place, a place for me to rest, reside, abide. Let them make me a sanctuary, the Lord spoke to Moses, that I may dwell in their midst. God has always desired to be with his children. Now the tent and the tabernacle later gave way to a temple. When Israel settled down in the land, God settled down. Access to God was still limited and still contingent on repetitive sacrifices, but God was still with his children. Now we're not traveling around with this tent. God has a permanent house, so to speak. We go from a tent and a tabernacle now to a temple, grand and glorious as it were. The children of God, they looked at this tabernacle, this tent, and the temple as a representation of some very distinct things. This is where you could draw near to God, hear from God, worship God, but most importantly, it was where God's presence was. This is where God lived now. It was his dwelling place. These, however, the tabernacle, tent of meeting, the temples, they, however, were just steps towards God's completing of this restoration plan. He wants to be with us. It's against this backdrop of the tabernacle and the temple that the Apostle John writes in John chapter 1, verse 14. Listen. Now, the Word has become flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To John's Readers, they're thinking, God is in the tent. God is in the tabernacle. And John comes along and he says, The Word, which is God, by the way, has become flesh and bone. And He has dwelt now with us. That word dwelt. Painted a picture for... uh, John's readers painted an important picture. When his readers heard that word, it created a scene in their mind. The word painted this portrait. It's the portrait of someone setting up a tent. You could translate this passage. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or you could translate it. For the word became flesh 
and set up a tent among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. When John uses these words, he draws from the imagery of God's presence being in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the temple. That's where you go to God. And John says, listen, God is now in the flesh. And he is tenting in the flesh. Sam Storms, theologian, he put it this way. John's point is that God now has chosen to dwell with his people in yet a more personal way. Listen, in the word who became flesh in Jesus, the word, Jesus of Nazareth, is the true and ultimate Shekinah glory of God, the complete and perfect manifestation of the presence of God among his people. The place of God's glorious dwelling is the flesh now of his son, The glory which once shined in the tent, the tabernacle, and the temple of old, veiled in the mysterious cloud, was simply a foreglow. I like that. A a mere anticipatory flicker, if you will, of that exceedingly excelling glory now embodied in the incarnate word, namely Jesus Christ. God no longer lives in a tent or a tabernacle, he says, built by human hands, nor will he ever. God's glorious manifest presence is not to be found in the ornate temple of marble, gold, and precious stones, but rather now in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God in human flesh, the one in whom God has finally and fully pitched his tent, tabernacled. The point is, the temple of the old covenant was a type or a foreshadowing of the glory of Christ. It was the place where the law of Moses was preserved of which Jesus is now the fulfillment. It was the place of the revelation and relationship where God met and spoke to his people. Now we draw near to God. We hear and see and meet God in Jesus. It was the place of sacrifice where forgiveness of sins was obtained. For that we now go to, guess who? Jesus. Israel worshipped and celebrated in the temple in Jerusalem. Now we worship in spirit and in truth regardless of of our geographical locale. To meet God, to talk with God, to worship God, you no longer come to a building, to a tent, to a tabernacle, to a temple made with human hands. You come to Jesus, flesh and blood. Jesus, listen, is now the temple of God. It's where his full presence resides. So the word became flesh Intented among us. God has always desired to be with his children. And he is unfolding and completing throughout history this plan to bridge the gap, to get back to where he can walk with us in the cool of the day without us running to hide, without there being a barrier between us. And so he takes the necessary steps and he develops the plan. And then he sends Christ to fulfill that plan so that in flesh and blood, the presence of God could be once again, not in a house made with human hands, but now we deal with him personally. Matthew 1, 23 says this. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, 
The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name, what is it? Emmanuel, which means God with us. He has always desired to be with his children. He wants to be with us. He wants to be with you. But here's the amazing thing. If all of that weren't enough, God doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop developing and unfolding and completing this plan to be with us so that we can enjoy him, that he might enjoy us, so that we could, through our enjoying him, glorify him. The plan, it is it, not finished. He doesn't stop in becoming the flesh, in dwelling in Jesus. Check this out. The Word not only became flesh and dwelt among us, but Christ is now said to live in us, church. We have become, according to Paul and Peter, living stones. Now follow me. We've become living stones of this temple that is Christ. We have become what? The body of Christ. Isn't that what we refer to ourselves as? We have become the body of Christ. What is the dwelling place of the presence of God? It is the word becoming flesh, tenting among us. Christ is the dwelling place. And we are his body. Therefore, we are the dwelling place of the Most High God. We are His tent. We are His abode. Isaiah 66. It's not on the screen. Just listen. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? You, you, you can't build a house to contain God. Not with bricks. Not with wood. That's ridiculous. Don't even try it. Where is the house you would build for me? And where is the place that I may rest, that I may find a dwelling? For my hand even made all these things. I made it all myself anyway. Would you even dare to try and to build me the facade of a house? For by my hand all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. Where does God take up residence, church? His choice place of residence is in Christ, in us. God has always desired to be with his children. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. Listen, in him, the whole building is joined together. In verse 20, uh, Paul says that Christ is the cornerstone of the building. He is the cornerstone of the temple. He is that linchpin stone, so to speak. The stone which everything else is measured off of and built from. Christ is the cornerstone. In verse 21, he says, In Him, Christ, the cornerstone, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in Him... You too, Paul says, are being built together to become a what? A dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple 
and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. First Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God. See also Leviticus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. I won't take you to all those places. God always intended to be with his children. To enjoy them. To be enjoyed by them. The greatest glory we can bring to our God is to enjoy his presence. To dwell with him who dwells in us. On this uh, Father's Day, that's the prayer of this pastor's heart for our men. And it's the reason for this message. Men, if your Christianity is a burden, then it is, then it is not of God. I don't know how else to say it. That's not to say that there is not some responsibility or duty or obedience to be expected of you. All of us. There is certainly all of those things. But above all, Jesus is to be enjoyed. To enjoy him, you must be with him. The video at the start had what, uh, what seemed like a thousand things that, that our kids need from us, dads. Let me give you just one that will suffice for them all. Walk with Jesus and enjoy him. Everything else will take care of itself. Walk in the presence of the God who is present in you. Enjoy, delight yourself in him. Embrace the presence, rest in his presence. He has tabernacled in Christ now in you. Not in some building built with human hands. His desire is to be with you, that you might enjoy him, that you might find rest and peace, power, understanding, knowledge, that you might find all that you need. His intent has always been to be with us. In this life, uh, there are 10,000 things, however, that will get in your way. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's uh, pride. Maybe it's being too busy. Maybe it's your career plan, your retirement plan. Maybe it's an attitude problem. Maybe it's an unrepentant heart. Maybe it's something you won't let go of. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's an undisciplined mind. Maybe it's uh, a death in your family. Maybe it's a, a sick child. Maybe it's a ploy of the devil. And we could go on and on and on. There are thousands of reasons to be distracted from the presence of the God that dwells among us. So here's the challenge. Fight for it. Fight for it. Last week, Preston preached to you. He stood here and he gave you this image with the people standing up here that we have a choice. He said, every morning we wake up and we have a choice in our soul. 
Are we going to go the way of the spirit? Are we going to go the way of the flesh? Are we going to go the way of the spirit towards the Holy Spirit to the God behind? Or are we going to go through our flesh to the world and to the man behind it? Satan. Which way are we going to turn? We have a choice. There are ten of there are thousands and thousands of reasons every day why we make the wrong choice, why it's easier to go this way. And we walk in the flesh and we find ourselves in the world, not enjoying the presence of the Spirit, not enjoying our God, not walking with Him in His presence. And He's there, mind you, but we've, we've chosen to go this way. When I was in uh, college, I'd go to uh, this program called FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And uh, every now and then they'd sing a few songs and do skits and whatever. And I remember one skit in particular more than any other because it impacted me, especially as a college student who likes to do whatever college students do. The skit goes something like this. A young man gets saved and now Jesus is with him. And so on the stage you have a young man and you have another person playing the part of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say any words. But what the skit displays is that now wherever this young man goes, Jesus goes with him because Jesus now is in him. The Bible says that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Go through your New Testament. Count the times that you are said to be in Christ and that Christ is said to be in you. And so the skit unfolds and this young man is going about his life now, having been saved and he is in Christ. And now he's got Jesus with him. And he goes to class and Jesus is there. And he goes back to his dorm and Jesus is there. And he goes to ball practice and Jesus is there. And he goes out with his girlfriend and Jesus is there. Well, The skit unfolds this way. The young man is happy to have Jesus there. He's in his dorm room and him and Jesus are buddies and he shows Jesus all around and he introduces him to uh, his way of life and uh, he gets up and he's going to go out on a date and uh, he notices that Jesus is now tagging along with him. And he turns around and he stops and he says, no, no, listen, uh, why don't you just stay here, Jesus? I'm going to go out and I'm going to... Hang out with my girl for a little while, and uh, you just hang out here. You just here. Here's the remote. Watch a little TV. I'll be back in just a little while. You, you just stay here. And Jesus, without saying a word, just keeps following him. And you see instance after instance. It goes through a few different scenarios where he tries to go out on his own without, without the Jesus that is with him, as if that can be done. And finally, he gets, he gets ultimately frustrated because he can't separate himself from the God that is present with him to do whatever it is he wants to do. And the skit ends by him holding Jesus back in one arm at a time, nailing him up so that he could walk away. Um, Dads, men, let me, let me challenge you and end on this. Very often as believers, we, we, know somewhere in the back of our mind that God is with us, that we are to walk with him, that we are to be abiding in the presence, enjoying, embracing the true presence of our God with us. But all too often, instead of God living in every room of our temple, instead of God having access to every part of our house, we lock him in the basement We say, stay out of our attic, please. There's nothing. You don't want to see what's up there. We keep closets 
from him. Closets of our heart. And we say, you can go here, you can go there. And sometimes when it's really bad, we say, just stay in the basement, Jesus. I'll tell you when it's Sunday, we'll go to church. Um, The prayer of uh, this pastor for our men, particularly our fathers on this Father's Day, is guys, uh, the best, the best I can hope for you. And if I have to ask you just one thing, I ask you this. Fight for, fight for the presence of God in your life. God is always intended to be with his children. He's always intended to be with his children. In the presence of God, everything else takes care of itself. You walk with God. You abide with him. You recognize that he has tabernacled with you. And you go out this afternoon and you go to that restaurant and you enjoy your Father's Day lunch. And when the waitress forgets whatever she was supposed to bring you, you remember that Jesus didn't stay here in this place built with bricks and stone and wood made of human hands. He lives in you. You are his temple. And when you go to work on Monday and you haven't even gotten there yet and you're on your way and that guy cuts you off, You remember that you are with Jesus. And when you get to work and it's not going great for you and the numbers are all down and you're sitting behind your desk and you don't know what to do, remember that you are with Jesus and he is with you. But let's not stop there. I'm not just saying to you, men and ladies, that you need to recognize the presence of God so that you stay out of sin. Can I just tell you that that is not the intent of this message today? That is absolutely true. The presence of God will keep you on the straight and the narrow, obviously. But can I tell you from the depths of my heart, the the message today is intended for you to recognize this, that the best you could ever hope for, the most delight, the most joy, the most satisfaction I could ever hope for you or myself is that you recognize, embrace, and enjoy the presence of God. There is a peace and there is a rest when we know that God is with us, that you're not going to have if you choose to walk by the flesh in this world with your back to the God that is present with you. Uh I'm going to come just short of begging you this morning, men. There is no greater place to be than with God. And he is always intended to be with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I'm afraid that this uh, is, like many messages, one of those that... um, until you bring the season in these men's life to experience such a thing as the joy of your simple presence, there there might just be a blank in the heart or in the mind. The dots may not be connecting. Lord, I know that I, I can't sufficiently explain the joy that is found just by resting in your presence. And hardships will come. And things will go wrong. 
And businesses will fail and children will get ill. Relationships will... Well, they'll split. Lots will go wrong. But yet still, might your word become true in us that we would taste and see that you, our Lord, are good. And that we might take refuge in you. That we might find safety and rest and peace. Lord, I could preach against sin. I could preach about duty. I could preach about obedience. I could preach to these men about what they need to do literally, practically in their life to be faithful, obedient men. But if I could pray one thing for them, if I could pray one thing for myself, God, would you be ever present with us? Might we, might we recognize your presence? Might it become a reality to us in a way that maybe it has never before? Might we leave this place knowing that we don't leave you behind? Might we walk our Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday with you? Father God, this relationship we have is not meant to be a burden to us. I'm convinced. Your word is clear that you seek to free us to enjoy you. Lord, would you teach us your ways? Would you grant us the blessing of your presence? Let us just have a taste, Father, that we might never be satisfied with anything else this world has to offer. Might we taste and see that our Lord is good and will never turn away again. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, why don't you stand with us? We're going to sing one more song. While we're singing, don't just take this as an opportunity to uh, be your transition out of the room. I've told you before that a lot of times this last song is simply a transition from listen to what the pastor has to say, deal with it as long as I have to, stiff arm the Holy Spirit as long as I can until I can get out that door and back on my way to where I was. And I've put in my time, but I've, but I've, I've made it out of here. Don't let that be the case. You've wasted your time. If that's going to be your intent of being here, go fishing. Go out on the lake. Enjoy the weather. You don't need to be here. In these last moments, give God these last moments. Even as we sing, if you don't want to sing, just let Ricky sing. Just bow your head and just ask God to take that fine-tooth comb through your heart. Find the areas that you're not willing to let him live in. Find the rooms that you've not given him access to. Let him go in and clean house if need be. And then sit back with your God and rest and enjoy Jesus. Amen? All right, let's sing.